Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. I want to start out with a couple of announcements. First, I need people to get on SpeakPipe. We've had about, uh, I think, three or four people get on there. But, you know, the 100th episode of Wealth Formula is coming up shortly. And I want to include you. So please, if you have any comments about the show, things you learn, things you like, things you don't like, just get on SpeakPipe and speak your mind so you can be, uh, you know, you can be on the 100th show. So anyway, do that. Go to wealthformula.com and uh, click on the SpeakPipe uh, thing and, uh, and talk away and listen to yourself on the 100th show. It'll be fun. Anyway. The other thing I want to mention again is the Note Buyer Bootcamp. That is the the event that George Newberry and American Homeowner Preservation are putting on to leak the special sauce of how they do it. How do they make so much money, you know? I mean, they've made investors. They've probably made you a ton of money. They certainly have made me a lot of money through this uh, this very unique brand of note buying and and being able to keep people in their homes, et cetera. And they want to share this whole business concept with you. And so uh, I, I'm going to certainly take them up on it. It's April 18th and 19th, the Note Buyer Bootcamp. It's in Chicago. I will be there. I'm going to be on a panel. I'm going to be on a panel related to marketing mostly, but I'm there to learn. And in fact, I even have my COO coming with me. We're going to learn this business. We're going to take it apart, man. I'm excited. This is going to be super exciting. You go to wealthformula.com, and again, you can get a coupon uh, for $200 off that event. And uh, pretty soon, as we get a little closer, I'll, I will announce the in whatever event we have there because we got to have some kind of event for Wealth Formula people. Do let me know if you're going, by the way, because I think that'll be a, a nice way to, to meet up. Uh, let's see what else. Make sure you go to wealthformula.com. Lots of resources there, including my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. You can also uh, simply get a copy of that by texting 44222 and typing wealth formula, one word, and it will come to you. So let's start with today's topic. Okay. Now, there's a philosophy that I live by, and I think it's a it's a good one. If you're heading into a dark cave for the first time, bring someone who's been there before. That makes sense, right? That's sound advice. And it's uh, sound advice not only for exploring caves, but also for investing your money. In fact, when it comes to investing your money, it might even be better 
if you brought a geologist with you who had previously studied that cave extensively and maybe even had a map that was drawn up of all of the pitfalls of that cave and all the special things you needed to see, etc. Uh, and also a great big flashlight, right? So there's no mystery. So you can see everything. You see, the mistake most people make is that they believe that investing is unpredictable. And why? Because they're brainwashed. They're brainwashed into believing believing that because that's what they've been told by Wall Street. They've been told by uh, wealth advisors that that's the case. How many times have you heard this? Invest for the long term in a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, right? What does that mean anyway? It means give me your money so I can pull off a bunch of fees. And when you see your account go down by 30% in the next correction, in the stock market correction, it's not my fault. Don't blame me. It's an act of nature. That's what that means for the long term, right? It's like, you know, it's, it's just sort of this leap of faith. Are we really that helpless when it comes to controlling our financial future? Well, God help us if we are. I mean, that, that sounds like a terrible way to live and plan your quote-unquote retirement. You know, and I can tell you from my own experience that we are indeed not helpless at all. If you feel that way, you have not tried hard enough. You have not spent any time, or enough time at least, on financial education or trying to build your network, your tribe, as I say. After all, your network equals your net worth. One of the most profound discoveries I made during this whole quest I've had over the last several years in understanding the way that the ultra-wealthy invest is this. It's not an accident that the rich get richer. You see, the wealthy, the ultra-wealthy, the affluent, they don't rely on luck. They engineer wealth, right? I mean, you hear, about, you hear that term, financial engineering, all the time. You know, and it sounds like, okay, well, yeah, they're usually referring to derivatives and all that stuff. But the reality is it's not that hard, right? Wealth is created. It does not spontaneously appear. You can't expect to get wealthy by simply hoping to get hit by shrapnel when somebody else is getting rich next to you. And that's that's the approach that most people take when they invest in Wall Street. Listen, I'm not saying that the rich never lose money. That's not true, of course. And, uh, and I'm not saying that they don't speculate. They sometimes do, and, and, and sometimes they even lose. But the bets they make are typically asymmetric. Now, what does asymmetric mean? It means when you are winning in an asymmetric bet, you're winning really big, right? You're winning huge. And when you lose, the losses are absorbed right? And if you do this over and over again, and you have more wins than losses, then you have a lot more huge wins and, and, you, and you make more money, right? They, in order to make sure they have more wins than losses, what they do is they make sure that they have insider information. Now, what am I talking about with this insider information? I'm not talking about illegal stuff, the kind of stuff that gets you thrown in jail, Please don't do that because there's plenty of legal ways to get insider information. And what I mean by insider information 
is getting information, being connected with people who are deeply connected with an industry or an asset class. They know it like the back of their hand, you know, like these guys uh, on a recent self-storage syndication that we did. In fact, we still have it open a little bit right now. These guys have been working on this same stuff for 30 years. They know it so well. I mean, they, they, they win after win after win, right? Simply put, you know, when, when the wealthy invest, they don't bet on something that they don't have good reason to bet on. They use people around them who are right, who are correct, way more often than they're wrong, and they make asymmetric bets. So when you find people like this, what do you do? Well, you tag along, right? I mean, that's what you do. You make them part of your network. You get to know them well. Anyway, for me, uh, a dark cave is Broadway musicals. I mean, they're completely foreign to me. Yet what I have found out is that they can actually be incredibly lucrative if you invest in the right one. And frankly, Uh, I have to tell you, I didn't even know you could invest in Broadway musicals until I met this week's guest in Wealth Formula Podcast, Erica Schwartz, because when it comes to musicals, she is a true expert. Um, And when we come back, she's going to illuminate this industry for us and tell us how we can profit from it. She is essentially going to be our guide into this dark cave of Broadway when we come back. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And today is a really interesting show. I've got a Really fantastic guest. Her name is Erica Schwartz. She is a, a general manager of the Emerson Colonial Theater in Boston. Now, if you are into, you know, the big shows, the, the Oklahomas and all, you know, all that kind of fancy stuff, which I, frankly, I'm not because I don't know anything about these things uh, except for the super famous shows. But a lot of them started there in Boston at the Emerson Colonial Theater, and and Erica is the uh, head honcho there, the general manager. And so I'm super excited to have her on the show uh, today. So welcome, Erica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, this is a, a little bit off the beaten path, so to speak, for, for a lot of things we've been talking about lately. But I love what you're doing. So I really wanted to talk about it on the show. So ta- why don't you start out with a little bit about your background so we can kind of understand, you know, this world that you're coming from? Sure. Um 
you know, I won't, I won't go all the way back, but I will say like many people in uh, live performance and entertainment, I started as a performer. Uh, I was, as I say, bitten by the bug very early on when I was probably about 14 or 15. I, my parents took me to see a show and I was hooked. And from there on out, I was fortunate to grow up um, not too far from New York City and I would make the trip in and see shows quite often. And, um, you know, just just always loved live performance. And uh, that took me to college. And pretty quickly, I have to say, in my college time, college career, I I realized I was not cut out to be a performer, though I loved it. You know, there are many, many talented performers, but it really became a situation of learning the whole business side of theater. And that was incredibly fascinating to me. Um, as a performer, you really, you know, feel that there's so much of, of your involvement. And then the moment I stepped to the other side, if you will, of theater, um, I saw there was so much more planning and so much more that went into making a show happen. And the actors were really the last piece of the puzzle. Whereas, you know, raising the money, figuring out the show, hiring the creative team, making a marketing plan, thinking about how you would make a show a long-term prospect and looking at the running and the cycles of shows uh, was all this discussion that happened sometimes years and years in advance. And then the actors get hired and then the show happens. So once I was exposed to the business side of show business, I never looked back um, and then very much set out to be a producer and manager um, for, for, you know, to put it in, into business terms, that's really, you know, the CEO and the CFO positions of running these shows. Okay. Interesting stuff there, Erica. Now, so, so what does it mean? So obviously when you say, you know, you're a general manager, it's sort of like being the CEO, et cetera, of a, um, of a theater. What does that entail? What are you doing? Are you, are you trying to pick out shows? What, what? How, do, how does it work? I mean, again, understand that I am a complete uh, idiot when it comes to this stuff. I don't know anything about it. So I'm trying to understand this world. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, um, you know, theater is actually, I should say, a very nuanced business in general. And a lot of the things that we do are very specific to our industry. But being the general manager of a venue does mean, as you said, um, I'm ultimately responsible for everything that happens in the venue. So picking the programming working with the marketing team to set the pricing, working with our concessionaire team to look at the menus, working with the shows to find out what they need to make their show happen in our space, listening to our guests about what would make a better guest experience. Um, and then, of course, ultimately, every financial metric possible, um, spend per head, you know, all of all any any key performance indicator for any major business ultimately lies with me as well. Um, so yeah. looking at, you know, we as the venue, we also look at shows in terms of understanding what that will mean for our bar sales or what that may mean in terms of productivity for the local economy as well, for the partner restaurants nearby and parking garages. All of those types of things influence our everyday very much. Yeah, so so that's uh, that's very useful because what that tells, uh, you know, that you really got your finger on the pulse of, of the way a particular show is is performing, et cetera. Now, the fact that you are the uh, effective CEO of Emerson Colonial Theater has some significance to it, right? Tell, tell us a little bit about the history of Emerson Colonial Theater and why it's of significance 
Sure. The Emerson Colonial Theater has an amazing history. Uh, it was built in the 1890s and came online um, really, obviously, at the turn of the century um, and is known for being the pre-Broadway stop. Many, many famous shows, as, as you said earlier, started at the Emerson Colonial Theater, um, including Oklahoma, Anything Goes, A Little Night Music. I mean, it's it's really a, a very special theater, especially back then. It was close enough to New York that most of the creative teams and the actors could be up in Boston, but also far enough away that maybe the, the critics or competing writers or whatnot weren't necessarily making the trip back then. Um, and in its own storied history, the Colonial has actually been shut down for the past few years. And um, the company that I work for, we came in um, about a year ago and we've undergone a, a major renovation and restoration. And we'll be reopening the theater this summer with a new pre-Broadway musical as well. So really restoring the theater back to what it's known for but also to be competitive in the current landscape, we will be doing all types of programming because what's wonderful in running a venue and really what's wonderful in working in live entertainment is just giving people the opportunity to either, you know, just do something for two or three hours that's a little bit different in their day. Maybe they're learning about a story of a different experience in themselves. Maybe they're just, you know, watching some dance or, or listening to their favorite band. So the programming is always what drives the venue and drives so many of the business decisions because the programming is how you can speak to the most diverse audience possible. And we've really been saying that, you know, the Colonial, we feel like it's such a special theater and everyone belongs there. So how, how do we do that? We do that through programming. So we're going to have yeah. rock concerts and comedy and speaker series and, of course, Broadway um, pre-Broadway shows and touring Broadway shows. From what I uh, have gathered in talking to you, that the the theater is actually sort of, in, in some regards, it's sort of the tri a tryout for Broadway, right? So you get to kind of be, you know, if you look at, uh, I'm, I'm much more you know, into sports, so it's more sort of like AAA baseball or something like that, and you're you're like the scout who's, who's finding prospects potentially that might be... Uh, that might make it make it to the big leagues. And part of what you, function you have where you're at um, is is to, to vet those out and to see how they perform, right? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly, you know, certainly in the theater, it's, it's you know, a lot of art and entertainment is, is very subjective. So it's very hard to really predict or project, oh, you know, this is a definite, you know, we, we would never use the phrase, this is a definite moneymaker, right? Th those are just not words that easily come out of our mouths. Um, but you're looking at what is the aesthetic of the show? What's the design team of the show? Who is the audience? Who is going to buy tickets to this? Who is going to come through the doors? What are they going to say? So having an out-of-town tryout for a show is a real opportunity to flex so many of those muscles and see, um, see what the response is, see what the takeaways are. It's very common for shows to make changes while they're out of town. Um, there's a lot of stories, great stories about songs that never made it out of, you know, never made it out of Boston or never made it out of Chicago. And these are shows, you know, that had songs or excuse me, songs that were cut from shows, um, you know, p whole pieces of scenery have been cut. And, you know, people joke about, oh, that's in a dumpster somewhere in Boston, you know. And, and so a lot of things really um, have to be tested in front of a live audience. Um, so we, you know, it's amazing to be a part of that experience really is it's very unique. 
So obviously this is a, you know, it's an investor show. So most people listening to this are, uh, although they may have an interest in the theater, a lot of times we're we're really coming to this, um, to Wealth Formula Podcast to try to learn at different ways that we can invest in things and and potentially make some money. So can you talk a little bit about the mechanics of investing in a show like this? Like, how does that work? Um, and, you know, the players sure. involved, et cetera. And, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, I should say I've been very fortunate to have worked um Throughout my career, uh, most of my career was in New York with several different producers and managers. Um, and I was given the opportunity very early on to start raising money for shows. And it's um, it's it's a very much, um, how do I want to say this? Investing in shows is a very interesting world because the shows themselves range wildly in terms of appeal, in terms of taste. And um, I've now probably raised money for at least, I don't know, half a dozen or more, maybe up to somewhere up to like between six and 10 shows. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't necessarily do it every year. There are people who every year have many shows they're attached to. And for me, I'm very specific when I choose to raise money for a show. Um, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy because there, there's so many nuances in the theater industry. But for people who are interested in investing, it's a wonderful kind of different investment. Um, it's a very exciting world if you like live entertainment and the arts and Broadway specifically, you know, there's, there's the old tale joke that people say you can't make a living, but you can make a killing. It's certainly true. I've seen it multiple times. I've worked on shows where we have not recouped the money and I've been fortunate enough to also work on shows that have completely knocked it out of the park. You have a pretty good track record, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would like. Yes, I've I've been I've been fortunate enough to to work for some. Yeah, shows tell that us have about some of those incredibly favorably. That's one of the reasons that I got so interested in this as I was talking to you and and your husband Matt about about this um, at a conference and and I I just found it so fascinating. So so yeah, why don't you give us a you know uh, a story or two to kind of get us a sense for, you know, what can happen. And, and of course we all know, listen, this is an investing show. We know we can lose all of our money. I got sure. a bunch of people in a cryptocurrency fund right now. They know the, <laughs> they know, right. they know, they know the, the risks, risk. right? right? Yeah. And right. and actually, as I think I, I joked with you, Buck, earlier about is that the investment documents, the subscription documents for a Broadway show, you know, the first 10 pages are like, bold 20 point, you know, this investment is, you know, it's like basically saying, do not do this, do that, do this, the inherent risk here. Um, it's called a private placement memorandum, right? Exactly. Exactly. So So it's always nice to, to speak to a group of people who already know what the risks are and understand. Um, and when I in particular am raising money for a show, I always say, you know, do not give me this money if, because I have, I think I have to be very clear that what we're doing is completely, um, there's, there's just no guarantee and there's no model. And even if a show has the same creative team as a, a wicked or has the same star as, you know, rent or something, that doesn't mean that the show in the time that it comes to fruition will be as successful. So I, I never try and compare, but, you know, I did, I did spend several years early in my career working on wicked, uh, which was an amazing experience. And, uh, when shows are incredibly profitable, you see that that cash flow and it, it is amazing. And then they become global brands and there's nothing else quite like it. I think 
and I should double check this fact, but um, Lion King worldwide has grossed more for Disney. I, I'm I'm gonna have to look this fact up, but um, it's it's grossed more I think than the film because of all of the theatrical properties. Um, it's something to that effect. Um, when I was working at Wicked, one of the initial investors in Wicked was Universal because Universal actually held the underlying theatrical rights. And it was the composer, Stephen Schwartz, no relation, but it was the composer, Stephen Schwartz, who went to Universal because he was interested in writing a theater piece based on reading the book. And Universal was holding the book rights to turn it into a film. And so they were holding all the rights. And he said, but I really think this is a theatrical piece. And Universal then contacted some people that they knew in the theater and um, they stayed attached. When Wicked became incredibly successful, we ended up changing the distribution model to quarterly because at the time, uh, Universal, who was owned in parent by GE at the time, they ended up putting it on their quarterly returns for their investors as a line item. So it's just to show you from a, a company on who's that, you know, operating at that high of a level, they had started to project out their quarterly returns, including a line item for the, all the revenue that was coming generated from wicked. Well, let's, let's um, talk sort of, if we could just get a little bit more granular in terms of, let's just, let's just take, for example, again, we know that, you know, past performance does not indicate future uh, uh, results, but, but let's talk about Wicked, uh, and again, I am completely ignorant. So I don't even know what Wicked is. Probably most people do, but I don't. <laughs> sure, but, um, uh, sure. Uh, but, granularly about Wicked. Wicked is a show um, that started on Broadway in I think it was two thousand two, two thousand three, um, and and you raised maybe money a little for bit early. Show? It's a musical. It's a take on there's there's a book written by a man named Gregory Maguire called Wicked. And it's a take on the Wizard of Oz story told from the perspective of the Wicked Witch. Got it. Um, OK. But so, basically. And you, um, and you raised money. Sorry. For that? Go ahead. You, and you raised money for that show. I did. I did not raise for that show oh, specifically. Okay. I worked for the general managers of that show. Yeah. Let's let's let's. Uh, I'm I'm trying to. Um, I think for a lot of us, it's so foreign. I'm just trying to go through an example of one where you raised money and um, how it worked. So, um, sure. Let's let's take uh, Hamilton for example. You raised money for Hamilton. I I'm an investor in Hamilton. You're an investor. Okay. So, Yep. So I'm an investor in Hamilton. So I was fortunate enough. Um, one of the producers is a is a dear friend, and she's someone who I've worked on and off with and known through the industry for years. And we were able, you know, this is done. So Hamilton had a kind of pre-Broadway, if you will, engagement, as we were discussing earlier, uh, in New York downtown at a nonprofit theater. And um, during that run we were given the opportunity to invest in the show. Um, and that most of the time the capitalization happens quite early. So you may have not even seen the show. Um, certainly the, all the capital is due before opening and um, you have to go based on, you know, the offering memorandums, your understanding of the creative team, you know, what you know, and for myself as someone who's been in the industry for, you know, a couple of decades at this point, 
the way I analyze those kinds of shows or any type of investment that I'm looking at. And then of course to raise for is what's the track record of the producing team? What's the track record of the managers? Because ultimately the managers are the ones who they're the CFOs, if you will, they're analyzing the cost, the expenses, the running of the show. Uh, one thing from an investment perspective, that's interesting about Broadway. And this was actually very interesting when we were working on wicked, going back to speaking about working with universal is Broadway has ongoing expenses every week. The show keeps happening. So when we would talk to Universal and we would talk about the budgets and the expenses, it took a little bit of time to explain to the finance team that, the you know, whereas the movie's in the can and the only real ongoing expenses they have is some marketing and press when the movie launches, the show that happens on Broadway happens every week. And those can be quite expensive running costs. So you have to, you're constantly playing in terms of making distributions with, how many more weeks are we running the show and obviously wanting to keep that going as long as possible um, versus how much money are we keeping in the bank in reserve versus how much money are we distributing? Right. So let's take, let's go back to Hamilton, for example. And again, I'm just trying to get, um, you know, some, a little bit of a concrete idea of how something like this would work. And I know that was a highly successful one. So these numbers um, may not work, but say, say, I, okay, I invest, I invested a hundred thousand dollars in Hamilton you know, usually when you look at a pro forma, and I know you're familiar through through your husband with, with real estate, but, you know, we yeah. look at it, maybe we'll look at a five-year pro forma, we'll look at something yeah. and, and give it. So can you try to break it down for us and kind of tell us how to look at, how would you sure. approach a show and, you know, how long does it run, how long are you owner, et cetera, that kind of thing? Sure. So when you're investing in a Broadway show, or let me step back one bit further, when you're investing, normally what you want to look at is investing in the originating company. So the originating company may be Broadway. It may be a national tour. It may be in London. Um, but for the example of Hamilton, to stick with that, it was Broadway. So when you're looking at the originating company, you're going to see two major um, documents that you're going to look at to start doing your analysis. The first is you'll be given a budget. That's your capitalization budget. So that's all of your costs for any developmental work that's been done. If there were any workshops or design labs or anything that, you know, happened in advance of the cast that's now going with the show. Um, you'll have your upfront artist fees. You'll have your set design costs, your physical build, um, those types of things. So that will be your overall capitalization budget. Um, and for Broadway shows, those can range anywhere. Currently, I'd say on the low, low, low side, you're going to be, I mean, plays are different. So we're talking musicals here. A very inexpensive musical on Broadway now will be somewhere between eight and $10 million. A very expensive musical nowadays will be somewhere between 20, $25 million, maybe a little bit more. Um, and that's all dependent on the size of the cast the size of the theater that you'll eventually be going into because the rent obviously plays a role into that, um, the size of the sets, the mechanizations you're using, projections, costume, lighting design, all of that, right? So that's your first piece that you're going to analyze. How much is the show itself costing and how much money are they raising? What's the advertising in there? That's a variable expense, right? So how how much are they going to put support behind launching this you know, project um, to put it into the marketplace? The second document that's key to look at which you're probably more used to buck 
especially in terms of real estate, is what's called a recruitment schedule. And your recruitment schedule is based on, um, it's normally done based on an average ticket price, the capacity of the theater you're going into, and then the show sets up various scenarios at various percentiles of gross, how, how long it would take to recoup. So when you're looking at these documents, you're basically seeing, okay, if we assume an average ticket price of, let's say, $85, and we're going into a 2,000-seat house, and we play to 80% capacity, it's going to take us X number of weeks to recoup our investment. And that's what you're looking at um, to see how quickly you're going to get your money back. Now, recoupment in the Broadway world is very much um, a, a moment to rejoice. In the investing world, you're just getting your money back. You want to keep going, right? Um, very often, shows don't necessarily talk about moving past recoupment. But th if you look at the show and you're part of the originating company, what is interesting is if a show has a successful Broadway life, it will most likely tour. It will most likely play in the UK. It may set up in other cities internationally, depending on its success. And all of those companies pay a royalty to the originating company. So that's where you then have, in a sense, it's not technically compounding interest, but you have you know, compounding revenue coming back to you from each one of those companies. So at one point in time, when I was working on Wicked, we had eight different companies out there, you know, I think three, um, three in the North America, one in Japan, one in Germany, one in the UK, et cetera, et cetera. So let's let's talk about the origin. So the originating company is the first one that that owns it or runs it, right? Is that is correct. that correct? So your typical recruitment, what's uh, not typical, but you know, I mean, because I know nothing's typical per se, but. Correct. You know, so but but just, you know, I mean, if you talk about return of investment mm -hmm. um, for a successful show, maybe what, a year, two years more? And a, a year is normally on the lengthier side. So normally you're looking hope you're hoping that it's somewhere between six to nine months, six to nine um, months. And then how long does a typical successful show stay with the originator? Because that's sort of your initial pop, right? Correct. So normally, I mean, a good a good solid show can have a good three to four year run on Broadway. Normally, somewhere within that second year is where a tour would launch. Um, the The key to the originating company is those investors. I mean, it's really out of respect for the investors is that they're the ones taking the greatest risk. At that time, it's an unknown brand. Once the brand has been proven as a ground on on Broadway or in the the West End, and a tour is then launched. It's it's a it's a much better known market. So in a sense, the investors in the originating company are being rewarded for branding that entity, putting the investments behind it, and then the subsequent companies, you know, can have that much easier of a entry into the marketplace because of what the originating company established. Well, if you do the math backwards here, we're talking about you know uh, a successful show having a effectively a, a return of capital within a year. And then, you know, three or four years, you're talking about, you know, four or five hundred percent return on investment. I mean, is, is that is that it can be there's there's ebbs and flows in the calendar year sure. that are natural on Broadway, um, specifically the early fall, you know, with going back to school and all the holidays tends to be a slower time. And January also tends to be a slower time. So the holidays really peak. So if you follow 
Broadway and Broadway grosses, you'll actually see a lot of shows will close uh, towards the end of the summer. And then a lot of shows will close towards the end of the year, mostly in January, February. And that's strictly because if you know you're not going to make it to November, December to holiday time, you're better off closing in September. Um, Sure, but then you have no expenses either. Right. Right. But then your expenses cease. Now, what happens is that expenses, as we spoke about earlier, your expenses every week are still quite high. Yeah. So you start to, you know, you can start to count down and start to predict um, when shows are going to start contemplating closing. Because an average Broadway musical, I would say their weekly running costs are going to be somewhere between five hundred and eight hundred thousand dollars a week. Sure. And all of the shows, I shouldn't say all, most shows report their grosses weekly mm-hmm. and those are published. So you can follow these grosses, which is something I've done for a long time and that I've, um, I don't want to say trained, but I've shared with many of my investors about reading the grosses. And if you start to see certain shows dip below 700, 600 for several weeks in a row, you know that they're not putting money away in reserve and you know they're not distributing money. So you can start to get a feel for you know, this show may not be around in the next six months. Um, so similarly, as an investor, when distributions start to slow down, it's a pretty good indicator that the show um, may close shortly. And some shows, you know, we haven't talked about the converse size. Some shows close very quickly, whether that means they opened and had a bad review or the ticket sales from the get-go just never went anywhere that was exciting and they knew to get back to that 10, 12, 14 million was just not in the cards. Sometimes shows will close very quickly in order to at least distribute some of the money back to their investors. Right. Um, so that that certainly happens as well. Interesting. So, so when you talk about, um, if you just talk about for a moment, obviously, uh, uh, maybe maybe Hamilton's not a good one, but maybe a successful one that wasn't Hamilton because that maybe that might be an outlier a little bit, right? Yeah, it, Hamilton's definitely the outlier, yeah. and um, you know it's it's for for me, I can say that of all the shows I've raised money for prior to Hamilton, not, and again, not that I raised for Hamilton, I'm just an investor in Hamilton, um, but for all the shows I raised money to prior they were much more the classic story. And I think the statistic is that, um, you know, four out of five shows don't recoup, right? So 80% of the shows that try to make it on Broadway don't last. Okay. Um, But then you have a significant number of shows that may recoup after their initial Broadway run uh, because of subsequent income that comes in from touring or or, um, when regional theaters perform the show and even the, the school market, the amateur market, there can be shows that have an incredible life post their actual Broadway life. So the statistics do get better when you're not looking at only in the initial Broadway run. Um, I would say in my own personal experience, a show, here's an example. I raised money for a show called If Then, which at the time was starring Idina Menzel, who at the time had a, a little successful film come out called Frozen. And so she was at the time one of the biggest, you know, new, new to the film world stars. But, you know, Let It Go was on every radio station. You know, I'm sure even just saying it now, somebody's humming it. And um, she was starring in this show on Broadway. It was her big return to Broadway. She was one of the original cast members of Rent many years prior. 
And the show itself was written by some writers who had had much prominence on Broadway before as well. So it was a very exciting new Broadway musical starring a very hot leading lady. And in the first um, in the first couple of months of the show, we were grossing over a million dollars a week. And myself and my investors, we were like, oh, this is great. We are going to if we keep going at this pace, you know, this is fantastic. The show is really, you know, you know, just running. This could be a runaway hit, which is very exciting. Um, In reality, the show ran on Broadway for a year. Um, It did not fully recoup its investment in that initial Broadway run, though it did go on to have a tour Um, and it was more of a typical Broadway investing story. You know, that is why when I, when I talk to people about investing in Broadway and I start my spiel with do not give me this money if, you know, I very much want to manage people's expectation that there is money to be made here potentially, but you also have to want to be supporting this art form or supporting the storyline of the show or, Many shows now are based on other source material. So if you loved the book or if you loved the movie or if you love this band, there are several shows, for example, Beautiful is based on Carol King. And there's a new show um, based on Cher's life. You know, if you love this artist, then then you might be interested in investing in this show and seeing this show come to fruition. Um, and I believe that all of my investors for If Then were, were, you know, many of my investors, most of my investors come with me again on the next show because even if they weren't made whole initially, um, and even if they lost all of their money in some cases, they knew that going in and they felt like they were part of something bigger. Um, and and therefore it was their decision to, to invest or not. Um, some investors as well, certainly to be very frank, you know, look at the opportunity as, as a loss that they can put against other gains that they may have. So um, you're mostly looking at investors with that opportunity who understand fully you know, the risk, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. And I think, you know, just to the, to the extent that, you know, we don't want to just talk about just the downside either, <laughs> but There's because, yeah. you know, I mean, because again, you're talking to a, a group of people are fairly sophisticated in that. And, and I'm trying, I, what I'd also like to know is like, you know, if, if I'm investing in something and if I have, what is it, what's, what's a good, ba- you know, What's a good show? I mean, I'm not talking about Frozen, but you know, give me an example of an opportunity you had that was a success that wasn't Hamilton, and to, so we can at least get some idea of what the those economics can. Sure. Look. Yeah, I think um, a good example is if you have a show um, that, while it's running, you're you're regularly getting some sense of ten percent or twenty percent distributions, right? And so therefore, within that first year, you'll get to recoupment. And then if the show runs for another year, you'll probably see another, I'm talking typically here, you'll hope to see, you'll probably see another 20 to 30% come in before the show closes. Mm -hmm. Then a tour will be launched. And you have the right, not the obligation, but you have the right most of the time to then invest in the tour subsequently. Um, and again, it's the right, not the obligation. And sometimes people choose to, and sometimes people choose not to. For example, with Hamilton, even though Hamilton's the anomaly, of course, my husband and I signed up for every subsequent company of Hamilton. Sure. And what that means is when they're all firing on all engines and all of those shows are going incredibly well, which we all know Hamilton is, that means we can get 
several checks a month from each, you know, each one of those companies will do a distribution regularly, monthly. Um, when a show really is a hit, you, it's very likely to see checks coming monthly, if not every other month. So, because when um, you're saying 10%, you're talking about 10% per month. Correct. Okay, that's important. <laughs> yeah, correct. Because when we, when we hear a 10% return in our world, we're usually saying 10% and that's, uh, you assume it's annualized. Annual, right. Right. Yes. But, so yeah. in, in the knock it out of the park example you never right. use to compare anything else to, in the world yeah. of something like a Hamilton, it could be that that high. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there are four... Yes, there are four companies of Hamilton out right now. Wow. So there's the oh no, there's now five actually. Excuse me. Um, so it just depends. And again, many people and I saw this when I worked on Wicked as well. Sometimes people would not invest in subsequent companies for a variety of reasons. Um, and you just look at each one as its own. You know, the the thing about investing in the subsequent companies, the tours or the UK production, if it originated in the US or whatnot, is that the only way those shows make back their investments or the only way those shows pay out any type of distributions or recoupment is from that production only. So you're only getting any kind of revenue source from that initial production. Right, right. When you're an investor in the originating company, you're getting the royalties from the subsequent companies, merchandise, CD sales, um, all of the other types of things that then become subsequently associated with the brand. If there's a film that subsequently gets made, the originating company is who benefits from all of those subsidiary, excuse me, subsidiary income streams. Right. So great. I mean, this is uh, this has been absolutely uh, fascinating to me. Um, this is you know obviously completely new. Um, where where can we learn more about you and 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 what you're doing? Sure, sure. I mean, the best way I'm I'm quite an open book. And I love, you know, I love, obviously, working on the business side of things. And anybody who has an interest in live performance and, and arts and entertainment, I, I'd love to be in touch with them. I have an email is probably the best way for folks to contact me, um, which I'm happy to give. Yeah, it's you can e give that and we'll also put it in the show notes. Great, perfect. Um, it's eschwartz at avalonroad.net. Fantastic. Erica, Thanks so much for being on the show and uh, and for tolerating my basic questions today. Not at all, not at all. It's it's a fun fun world to be in, and I, I'm tr obviously truly passionate about it. So I'm thrilled to share that with others. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I bet that this whole idea of investing in musicals was new for a lot of you, or maybe I'm the only one who is uh, so poorly. Uh, uh, you know, I'm just not a very sophisticated guy, I guess. I don't know very much about musicals, but I certainly didn't know anything about investing in musicals. And to me, that's uh, that's almost even more exciting. So definitely get in touch with uh, Erica if you think that's something that you may have an interest in. We may have something coming up in the near future in Investor Club that involves a Broadway musical. So if you have not signed up for Investor Club, but you are an accredited investor, make sure to go to wealthformula.com and sign up for Investor Club and schedule a time to talk to me. Now, speaking of Investor Club, we did have a 506C offering in self-storage. Uh, this was a phenomenal uh, opportunity. I was really excited about this. And in fact, we filled it up, you know, like $3 million or $3 million plus in, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, we did this, and then we got an extra allocation um, because the group that we were doing this with, another uh, investment group, was 
uh, they fell short. They were not able to raise enough money. Um, so we got uh, an allocation here. So we have a couple hundred thousand dollars left. If anybody wants it, uh, minimum investment in that is $50,000. If you're interested and you want more information on it, watch the webinar, whatever. You can watch the webinar on wealthformula.com. And um, and if you want more information on it, certainly send me an email at buck at wealthformula.com. That is a Regulation D-506C offering, and it's open only to accredited investors, and that's why I can talk about it, by the way. It's one of those deals that um, you get a, uh, you know, there's a significant cash-on-cash uh, cash performa uh, and also a, a cash-out refi opportunity that creates that interesting uh, infinite return on investment situation. Again, email me if you're interested in that at bucketwealthformula.com. Make sure you also leave your comments for that Hunter's show on uh, SpeakPipe and go to wealthformula.com and check that out. With that said, I am going to leave it there. This has been an exciting show. And uh, this is uh, Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safety with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.